Welcome to the Get Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Liz McGavro, and I'm obsessed with all things writing, creativity, and telling your stories in your authentic voice, because I believe a good story can change the world. Ever since I was a little girl with my nose in a book, I dreamed of being an author. I wanted to see my books in bookstores everywhere. I wanted to talk about books. I wanted to soak up everything about the craft. My celebrity crushes were mostly authors and I could feel in my bones that the writer's life was my destiny. Fast forward to today. Along with my alter ego, Kate Conti, I'm an Agatha Award-nominated best-selling author with three mystery series, but it wasn't all smooth sailing along the way. I experienced many setbacks, crushing self-doubt, a lot of career detours, and I even lost my voice a few times when I let the world get in my way. Until I learned that writing was so much more than just a skill set you learned and developed over time. It's also an inside job that flourishes when you heal all the wounds that are stifling your creativity, which is no easy task. So if you're a writer of any kind, or if you've always wanted to write but aren't sure where to start, this is the place for you, my friend. We're gonna talk about all things writing process, craft, strategies to help you get writing and stay writing, the daunting world of agents, editors, and publishing, And because I'm using my authentic voice, I'm going to throw in a little woo-woo for you too. So let's get writing, shall we? guest for you today. So as writers, we're often obsessed with research. I mean, I'll speak for myself here. I've researched tons of interesting things for my books, from funeral homes to dairy farms and many things in between. And one thing that's always helpful to crime writers is getting intel on how law enforcement really operates. I mean, there's nothing like a behind-the-scenes look to help you craft your story, right? And we have to be precise about the details and we have to get it right because otherwise it'll look like we didn't do our research. Nobody wants that. So I've got a treat for you today. I have a retired NYPD police detective who turned his 20 plus years on the force into six books. He spent time in organized crime, the auto theft division, and maybe even worse in Catholic school. So I'll tell you a secret. I wanted to be a cop for a while. My grandfather was a detective and I thought it would be the coolest profession because, you know, the TV shows made it look like that. I also wanted to be an FBI agent, but mostly that was because I wanted to share a basement with Mulder. In the end, I chickened out of both things and decided writing about it was better. So I came to rely on the people who've done the work to tell me all about it, like my guest today. Vic Ferrari, author of NYPD Law and Disorder, Grand Theft Auto, The NYPD's Flying Circus, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, and Dickheads and Debauchery, is a retired New York City police detective and probably the funniest person you've never heard about. With no formal training or Harvard degree, Vic has managed to carve out a niche in the literary world. When he's not shamelessly promoting his books, Vic is a frequent guest on the nationally syndicated radio show, Sterling on Sunday. I think you're going to enjoy this one, so let's get right into it. Hey, Vic, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Liz, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. This is going to be fun. I'm excited. So tell us about your career. How did you get into law enforcement? Did you always know you wanted to be a police officer? 
Oh, yeah. Um, from probably about the age of five, I knew I wanted to become a New York City cop. I mean, growing up in the Bronx and New York City, watching all the television shows and movies. I used to beg my parents to take me to see PG&R movies when I was under 10 years old. Around the corner from the local movie house was a police station. So when my mother would take me on Saturdays to see Herbie the Love Bug part, whatever, I would run up to the police cars and look inside and look at the equipment. I would treat the cops as rock stars, asking them all sorts of questions. By age of 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall and conduct manhunts around the block. I knew what I wanted to do from a very early age. By by 20, I took the uh, the exam to become a New York City police officer. By 21, I was in the police academy where I had a wonderful 20-year career. I love it. I love that you took the posters and conducted your own manhunts. Did you ever find anybody? <laughs> oh, these are people no. wanted all over the country. At 10 years old, <laughs> we didn't get beat up messing with some poor construction worker, getting a sandwich at the local deli. <laughs> So you have a lot of stories in your books about, you know, the time you spent on the on the force. So but you you did mention that you worked in organized crime, which I've always been interested in. I'm Italian, you know, the whole mob thing I grew up with. I was a Sopranos junkie. So tell us about what mobsters you rubbed elbows with and some of those stories. Well, I'll tell you funny. Before we get to that, when when I was a cop, when I was a detective, right, the Sopranos came out Mm -hmm. and it was funny. Every Monday morning you'd have an office full of 20 detectives and several supervisors dissecting the Sopranos. Like, that wouldn't have happened. And, oh, yeah, I've heard of that happening before. And we called up HBO after the first season. I'm like, is there going to be more of this? Because, like, we really enjoy this. The guy goes, we get calls like this all the time. But, yes, I did rub elbows with mobsters. Now, the Auto Crime Division is a 120-person unit that's based in Queens. And our job was to tackle auto theft. We would pick off the garden variety pain in the ass car thief from time to time, but our mission was to go after the chop shops, the junkyards, professional car thieves, guys shipping stolen vehicles out of the country. Most of that was done in Queens and Brooklyn. Even though I worked in the Bronx from time to time on large-scale takedowns and investigations, they would call us to back them up or provide surveillance because we were kind of like ghosts. The mobsters didn't know us. They had never seen us before. Or they would send us into their junkyards to do inspections to kind of stir the pot to see what these guys, it's called tickling the wire, to see what they would say on a wiretap. So I did rub elbows with a lot of mobsters, um, especially in the auto theft world. But even before I was a member of the New York City Police Department, my dad was a butcher. And he worked out in a wholesale meat place out in Queens, which was run by the mob. Now, I didn't know this. And as a 12, 13-year-old boy on Sundays, I would go to work with my old man. And you started noticing things out of place, right? Like everybody was Italian that worked in this place, right? (laughs) And one day, my dad asked me to go up to the second floor and get a couple of things. Well, he's trimming steaks downstairs. And as I'm going up these concrete stairs, a man comes rolling down the stairs, The guy is screaming, help, help. He's all broken up. And Carmine and Anthony, let's just say, come walking down the stairs and they're laughing. And I'm standing there like, what the fuck? You know, like, what happened? And they're like, oh, Vic, don't worry about him. He's an old friend of ours. And the guy's like, help me, help me. They pick the guy up like a bag of garbage and they throw him into the street. So I go to my dad, dad, you know, Carmine Anthony just beat the shit out of a guy and threw him down a flight of stairs. And my father goes, just keep working. I'll find out what's going on. So later that day, we're on the ride home, and my father's. I, I bring it up again, and my father says, yeah, that guy's a shoplifter. 
They caught him once before. They gave him a couple of smacks, kicked him in the ass, told him never to come back. He goes, today, he snuck back in trying to steal a slab of ribs down his pants. So they brought him up to the second floor. They beat the shit out of him. They put his hands in a vice. When I saw him at the bottom of the stairs, his whole mouth was blue, which I didn't understand. And I says, why was his mouth blue? He says, well, he wanted a drink of water, so they poured a can of paint down his throat. Oh. So, yeah, they they had their way of handling things their own way, quality control. So my father said, well, this is the last time I'm bringing you into work. And I was heartbroken because I was like, why? I don't understand. And he says, you're, you're starting to notice things. You're starting to realize things. He goes, I need a job there. You don't need a job there. And I don't want you getting too close to these people. And I don't want you working here. I don't want this to be your life. And that's a story from my book, Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate, because it deals with me growing up in the Bronx and the things that I saw. Then there's another character I used to run into quite frequently growing up in the Bronx. Um, they made a movie about his life. His name was Tommy Uver. I don't know if you heard the name. No. They made a movie about his life called Rob the Mob. The movie is about this kid that goes to jail, comes out. Him and his girlfriend are going around knocking over mob social clubs. In the back of these mob social clubs, you got gambling and shit going on. They would go in there and rob the place. The girl was the wheel man, and he would go in and hold the place up. And they basically he ripped off so many. There's five crime families in New York, and he was going around ripping them all off. So they basically had him on the endangered species list. Like whoever sees this guy, he's got to go. And uh, what wound up happening is they lured him to a spot out in Queens where I think he thought he was going to fence some jewelry. And when he showed up, two guys emptied two Glocks into him and the girlfriend. And they usually won't touch women. But mm -hmm. because she was a getaway driver and a big part of these robberies, she had to go, too. And the homicide went unsolved for decades until it was finally solved. And then Hollywood caught a whiff of it and made this movie, which has nothing to do with this guy. But anyway, he grew up in my neighborhood and he was like the local punk. Wasn't a tough kid per se. He hung out with these guys that were gorillas that could beat the shit out of anybody, but he wasn't tough. And I had a couple of encounters with him because I worked in a gas station. He would come driving in, you know, give me $2 in gas and then throwing a dollar eighty change in my face before driving off. And it's like, I always wanted to beat the shit out of him, but I knew had I done it, I would have gotten knocked around. So it really wasn't worth it. And then eventually when he got killed and then my brother calls me up and he goes, you know, they made a movie about that guy's life. I'm like, get out of here. There is no way. And I put it on like, I don't believe this. <laughs> so I saw that early on. I grew up in a neighborhood where literally several blocks from where I grew up, um, the, uh, the leader of the Don of the um, Bonanno crime family, Vincent Vinny Gorgeous Bassiano, his headquarters, they used to call him Vinny Gorgeous because he owned a couple of hair salons called Hello Gorgeous. So the nickname stuck, Vinny Gorgeous, but I mean, you wouldn't call him that to his face. Um, I didn't deal with him per se, but I saw him around the neighborhood. You know what I mean? It's like you'd see them. They go out, they leave the place and they go for a walk and talk to make sure they weren't being surveilled or the cops didn't have parabolics trying to pick up their conversations. And, you know, you'd see him around the neighborhood. You knew it's only a matter of time before, you know, he was going to wind up in jail because the, the higher you go up in management and the mafia, the bigger the target is on your back for law enforcement. And that's when everybody just starts piling on and then law enforcement starts sharing information like how, how are we, you know, what's this guy doing and pieces of the puzzle start forming together. Yeah. Um, in auto crime, I used to get called out again to Brooklyn, Queens during these search warrants and stuff. Uh, let's see. Gotti, John Gotti's son-in-law, Carmine Agnello owned a, um, he basically ran 
um, the Willits Point section of Queens, and that was right next to Shea Stadium where um, you had a lot of glass places, engine places, body shops, junkyard. If you wanted to open up a business in that neighborhood, you basically had to deal with him. So what our Queens office did was they set up a trailer and put it on an old abandoned junkyard, filled it up with cars, and just waited. And, you know, Carmine showed up and started threatening them and telling them they had to pay tribute, which they did. And they dealt with him for about a year and a half. He had no idea he was dealing with several NYPD detectives. And what they realized, in, in addition to the extortion, there was a lot of other scams going on in the neighborhood. Like, if you own a junkyard in New York, I guess, or anywhere, you can't just chop up cars on the ground. They don't want the waste oils going into the ground, tra transmission fluid, antifreeze, engine oil, et cetera. So what they want you to do is have a concrete slab. They want a company to come once a month to take these oils where they're supposed to be recycled or God only knows what they do with them. They were running this scam where there's this woman that owned a company and she would come around once a month. You would pay her and she wouldn't pick up your oil. But in case the EPA came by, you're like, oh, no, here, here you go. I'm paying to have this removed. So a lot of these scams got exposed. Towards the end of the case, um, Gotti's son-in-law caught wind that there was an investigation on him. So he started calling people in that he didn't think that would stand up, calling them to his base of operations out in Queens and getting everybody in line. Like, if there's a grand jury, you had better not talk. And these two, these two guys that weren't cooperating, they got called out to, to a trailer. And as the story goes... While they were in there getting a good tongue lashing, their cars got cubed. So when they came outside, I mean, that's how the story goes. That's what I was told. The cars were crushed into little cubes. You know, they're not going to go. Where are they going to go? Call, come to the police and go, yeah, I'm dealing with this gangster. And oh, by the way, he crushed Mercedes into the size of a desk. So that never went anywhere. Um, other mobsters, there was a guy, famous mobster by the name of Fritzy Giovanelli. He was a, he was a big shot in the Genovese crime family, otherwise known as the West Side, he was involved in a money aspect of one of the junkyards. He had he was he was tried and acquitted of killing a New York City detective in the late 70s, early 80s. And somehow he beat the case. So he always had a target on his back. And I know somehow, some way he had wandered onto the playing field of one of our cases. And I remember him getting picked up. Um, Ernie Viacari was another guy, junior, we dealt with quite a bit. He owned a junkyard out in Queens. Um, another Gotti guy, Charlie Caniglia, he was another guy. He actually went away for several homicides. He owned a junkyard that our uh, Queens team or Brooklyn team was always looking at. So, yeah, we, 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 I definitely rubbed elbows with the boys from time to time. It's really interesting because, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just the, the cliche of the mob being affiliated with waste management. And I never really thought of auto theft or auto, you know, junkyards or anything like that as part of that. Is that common? Did you know you were getting into mafia related things? Yeah. Anybody. So I call it the auto theft industry. It, it, it's fueled by. So look at it this way. You've got a two thousand. You've got a 2020 Honda Accord. And over the weekend, you get into a front end collision. And you go to two body shops. Body shop A tells you he'll have it back together and painted in two weeks, and it's going to be a $1,500 deductible. And then you go to body shop B, and they say, I'll have the car in three days, and don't worry about the deductible. We'll work something out. You're going to go to body shop B. 
Body Shop B can pull this off because he's going to send a steel team out to steal a 2020, 2021 Honda Accord, same color, so he doesn't have to paint it. It's going to go into either his shop or somewhere else. They're going to pull the parts off it, slap it on your car. Then what they're going to do is they're going to inflate the cost of damage or they know the adjuster. They're either going to work something out with the adjuster or they're going to make it look like there's more damage than it really is and you'll get your car back. So you're going to go to Body Shop B. With junkyards, yeah, people bring them their cars, they give them their title, they get pennies on the dollar for their car, they strip the car, the parts are put on racks. But the reality is they send out steel teams and guys steal to order and they put those parts on the racks and it's found money. So if they steal a 2020, they pay a kid a couple hundred bucks to steal a 2020 Honda Accord. They're selling the engine for a grand. They're selling the transmission for a grand. They're selling the seats for 800. You know what I mean? That, that car is worth more money in parts yeah. to them. And it's found money because they're paying pennies on the dollar to pay a couple of kids to clip it. So is this still a big mob business today or is it more just random people kind of doing this, doing this stuff now? I mean, I, I'm retired now 16 years. I, I'm sure they still have their finger in the pie somehow, some way. I, there's no way it can be like the way it was. Like I know like in, in the Bronx, you had the Hunts Point section and you did have a couple of mob guys in Hunts Point. But for the most part, it was Spanish guys that, that owned the junkyards and body shops in there. What their downfall was is there was this guy that we used to work with. We used to call him Joe Dirt. He was a detective in the auto crime division. What he would do is we used to laugh at him at first, but then we're like, you know what? He's on to something. He would surveil a place and he would watch guys cutting up cars and watching the waste oils go into the ground. And then he would come back with a search warrant to, to dig up their dirt. And he would leave with several bags of dirt. He would send it to a lab. It would test positive for all this crap. Then he would come back with the EPA and they would just close the place down and levy fines. And then what New York City has is under the Giuliani administration, they started this thing what's called the nuisance abatement program. And the nuisance abatement program originally was used to clean up the Times Square area in Manhattan. In New York City in the 60s, 70s, 80s, Times Square was all sex shops, sex theaters, when we were kids, we used to go down there and get fake IDs. We'll try to get fake IDs, fireworks, nunchucks, anything a teenage boy shouldn't have. Hmm. And under the Giuliani administration, I, and I forget the rules on it, but if you have two or three or four felonies committed in your location within a year, the city can close you down and force the landlord to evict whoever's in there running this shit. And if they don't, the city can take the property through you from you in civil court and resell it. So that's how, you know, if you look at Times Square now and you see all the Disney stores and all the flagships, Nike stores, all those places came in after the city kicked out all those those sex shops. So they basically used the same logic in the Hunts Point section of the Bronx. All those places were closed. And then the mindset was to eventually, I guess they would get kicked out and then more warehouses and different companies would come in. I don't know if the idea ever took. I wasn't involved in nuisance abatements. That wasn't my thing. But I know that that played a role on cleaning up Hunt's point and I think Willett's point too. It's really interesting because, you know, as writers, I think we focus a lot on the homicide detectives, right, and all the homicide investigations. I never thought of auto theft as a place where you could find really cool stories, but it sounds like we might be missing a lot of fodder by not not recognizing that. Did you ever want to work homicide? <sighs> You know, homicide, my old partner, I worked with a guy 
we're very close friends. We both went to narcotics and then I gravitated towards organized crime. He went to robbery and then ascended to homicide. And he worked in homicide probably 20 years. He just recently retired. He actually uh, narrated the Netflix series uh, Crime Scene, the Times Square Keller. Great guy, great detective, sharp as attack. That was his thing. He always he was methodical with certain things. He, he was a great investigator. I don't know if I could do that day in and day out. Yeah. I just I don't. I, I think um, I think I'm a little scatterbrained to do that day in and day out. Um, it's I don't mind dealing with dark stuff every now and then, but I think after a while that that would weigh on me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You did mention when we met before we record, started recording the, the Son of Sam case. Did you work on that? What was your... Oh, no, God, no. I was a little <laughs> boy. I was... While that shit was happening, I was about 10. I have an aunt that's about 16 years older than me. Now, she was a young woman at the time. And I remember it was in the front page of the news every day. My aunt cutting her hair short because she was mm-hmm. a brunette. She died. It, she cut it short. She died blonde. Yeah. Um, that was a big thing in New York. But now the funny thing is 12, 13 years later, right? I'm a cop. I had this narcotic seizure. In the old days, the lab of the police academy was on the, uh, the lab was on the sixth floor of the police academy in Manhattan. So I go up there with this narcotic seizure. You get off the elevator. I think to the left was the narcotics section or the lab. To the right was ballistics where they would fire a gun into, into a water drum and you know examine it and ballistics. So after I drop off the narcotic seizure, I'm waiting by the elevators. I hit, I'm waiting for the elevator. And there's this large, I mean, display case. It went the length of the wall. It looked like something some guy's dad or shop class guy would do. It wasn't like professionally done. It was like stained wood under plexiglass. And I'm looking at, you know, they had all these cool guns and stuff. And I look and looking right at me is the son of Sam's charter arms, 44 Mm -hmm. caliber handgun under glass. And I'm like, Holy shit, like no one else in the country probably knows this is here except for a couple of cops that come up here at once a couple of times a year. And then as I'm marveling at that gun, thinking of the history behind it and all the terrible things it did, right next to it was the gun that killed John Lennon. Hmm. So it's like, wow, this is just a, a part of Americana or New York City history that most people don't get to see. Another thing you got to see with the Sun Sam is. In the old days, before things got computerized, if you wanted to get someone's photographs or rap sheet, you had to go to police plaza. You had to fill out a form and then you had to wait. And while I was waiting, I think it was called BCCI. While I was waiting around for you know a, a clerk to bring me back the rap sheets on somebody, you had the son of Sam's fingerprint card on the wall. So I was like, again, here I am with something interesting. And now the funny thing is, the guy that worked in homicide I was telling you about, he goes up to Sullivan Correctional Facility to pull some guy out who's serving for some homicide decades ago. They're going to pull him out, bring him back to the Bronx and charge him on a new homicide. I don't know if they linked him through DNA or a witness came forward or whatever, but they're getting this guy out of jail in upstate New York. They're going to bring him back to the Bronx and charge him with another homicide. So while they're waiting on this guy to get processed, my old partner, this homicide detective, is talking to the warden, and the warden is showing, giving him a tour of the facility. And uh, my old partner says, uh, isn't the son of Sam housed up here? And he goes, yeah. And he just keeps going on with the tour. So my old partner is persistent. He brings it up again, and he says, I think I know what you want to see. Take a walk. So they, he, he walks him over to this jail cell, and 
I guess him and his partner and the warden go into this tiny jail cell and it's the son of Sam's jail cell. <laughs> and he says there's like fan mail several feet high. Everything is in order, symmetrical, his shoes. He goes, it looked like like he had ADD, like just how perfect the cell was. He goes, so while they're in the cell just looking around, this little fat ball guy is, is pacing outside the cell. And he's like, warden, warden, is everything all right? And he goes, no, no, David, everything's fine. These two detectives are from Bronx Homicide. They wanted to see your cell. Oh, my God. He goes, I'm staring at the son of Sam. You know what I mean? Like decades, 30, 40 years since, you know, he was running around like a madman. And uh, he said, David Berkowitz looked at the two of them. He goes, you guys from the Bronx, huh? He said, yeah. He goes, well, you guys are a little young to be here for anything I did up in the Bronx. You guys must have been kids. So I'm sure you guys aren't here for me. And they said they were like, wow, like he went from being a nervous wreck. And when he saw that they weren't really here for anything, then he kind of became somewhat of a smart ass. Yeah. Another son of Sam story I have. This is funny. Guy I sat across from me, one of the funniest guys I ever worked with, bought a condo in son of Sam's building. Years <laughs> later, building goes condo, right? So you have all these fans and true crime enthusiasts coming by to take photos of the building, stealing shit out of the lobby. So the, the homeowners association has enough. So they lobby with the city of Yonkers to get the address changed. From I think it was I know I'm going to give that the address. I think it was like something like 32 Pine Street to 14 Pine Street. It was on Pine Street. Anyway, they get the address changed to throw people off. Right. So when this guy buys the condo in the building, I'm breaking his balls like every day. I'm like, hey, Danny, do you hear the voices in your head? Are you being tormented <laughs> by voices? He goes, you want, you know who torments me? I said, no, who torments you? He goes, the goddamn mailman. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, he goes, because he keeps delivering my mail across the street. <laughs> You want to hear another wild story about a condo? Totally. When I was, okay. So that same guy that I was just telling you about, this guy that I worked with, I'm a young cop. This is decades earlier. I had like two, three years on the job. There's a sign posted in the precinct about a cop selling a condominium in Yonkers. Somewhere in Westchester. I thought it was Yonkers. Anyway, um, I'm writing down the numbers. So this guy says, don't call him. I said, why? He goes, you're not going to like him. I'm just telling you, you're not, I don't like him. Just don't leave him alone. I go, I, I said, I'm not marrying the guy. I just want to see what his condo looks like. He goes, there's always an issue with this guy. I'm just telling you. I call the guy up. He did rub me the wrong way. We exchanged phone numbers. I said, I'll think about it before I go up and take a look at this place. And I got off the phone and I said, yeah, you know what? You're right. There's just something. I don't know what it is. So um, a couple of days later, the guy starts leaving me nasty messages on the answer machine. I thought you were interested in the condo, blah, 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 like trying to strong arm me into look at this place. I'm like, fuck him. Never thought another thing of it, right? God, it's got to be 15 years later. His name is in the newspaper. Um, broke up with the girlfriend, stalking her, abducts her, takes her to the woods somewhere in Westchester County and starts stabbing her to death. Um, leaves, the cops pull him over, he's covered in blood, and they found her in the woods, barely alive, and um, he wound up getting like 20 years in jail. Wow. Yeah. Good thing you didn't buy that condo. He wasn't going to do that to me, but yeah, I, I know what you mean. It was just, there was just a vibe when, he, you know, yeah. it was, and I blew my friend off originally. I was like, nah, just, what's it going to hurt? I'm going to call you. I'm telling you, there's something with this guy, and he was right. Yeah, that's crazy. So you wrote a bunch of books about your experiences, so you have a ton of them, but what's the one story that you will tell 
to the end of your days about your time in the NYPD? Well, I know what you want because you like homicides and mafia and crime stuff. So I'll give you that. <laughs> one. So we'll lose an Audi eight. This is around 2000. We'll lose an Audi a sixes like crazy. They're just vanishing off the face of the earth. And usually when you have a pattern of stolen cars, they're going to turn up in different neighborhoods, chopped or sections of cars, or you're going to lock a kid up driving one. And that's where you're going to get to the root of the problem. Who's stealing these cars? Where are they going? These Audis are vanishing off the face of the earth. Then we start making phone calls and we realize it's happening all over the tri-state area. They're hitting dealerships over the weekend with five, six, ten cars at a time and getting swiped. So we knew this is an organized crime thing and there's more than a couple of guys involved. This is a large scale operation. So we basically form a joint uh, task force with um, Janine Pirro out of the Westchester County DA's office and the New York State Police. And this guy gets arrested up in... uh, Rockland County. He's on life parole in Florida for a bunch of shit. He gives it up. He says that there's these Chinese guys out in Brooklyn. They barely speak English. One of them is like the head muckety muck. He's hooked up with a Jamaican middleman in the Bronx. And with the Jamaican, they're paying the Jamaican middleman $5,000 a car. The Jamaican is paying different steel groups between $500 and $1,000 an Audi. The order is for Audi A6s, Silver and black, that's the only color they want. The cars get stolen. They're parked on the street in the Bronx, Manhattan for several days to cool off to make sure they don't have a GPS or tracking device. They go out to Brooklyn. First, these these Asians own a warehouse. Well, they rent a warehouse on, uh, I think it was Metropolitan Avenue out in Brooklyn, just over the border from Queens. What they do is it looks like a legit business. A couple of times a week, the gate goes open. A couple of Audis go into the garage. The gate closes. They had Chinese nationals working there. What they would do is drive two stolen Audis per shipping container, right? Fix the ignitions, let all the air out of the tires so the Audis would sit low in the shipping container. They built wooden frames above the two car, the lower cars, and then they hoisted one or two cars above it. So now they're putting between three and four stolen vehicles per shipping container. Then they call a legit trucking company who doesn't know what's inside. They give them a phony bill of laden. And the, the, tr- the truck is trucked out to Newark, New Jersey. They're put on trains. They're railed across the United States. And then they're put on cargo ships in Long Beach, California, where they're sent to Shanghai. Now, this was going on for years. And they got greedy and, it, you know, probably started with five cars. Then it was, you know, they're doing 25, 30 cars a month. So we get wiretaps on the Asians. We get wiretaps on the Spanish co- uh, Spanish thieves. And we're putting a case together. But what we quickly realize is that our thieves, in addition to being prolific car thieves, they're in the murder for hire business. Mm -hmm. And they start bragging about whacking this one and whacking that one. So we're like, holy shit, like we got homicides in this. And like one of the first homicides that jumps off at us is one weekend during the case, these guys go down to Virginia and they hit a Harley Davidson dealership and they steal helmets, jackets, um, crates of uh, unassembled motorcycles. They load it up in trucks. They bring it back to the Bronx. They put it in this guy's garage and they're selling shit piecemeal out of their garage off the black market. So a couple of neighborhood kids figure out where they're storing this stuff. They do a burglary. They break into this guy's garage and steal some of his shit. This guy goes in the middle of our investigation, him and his friend, two of these car thieves go and kill this kid. We had to pluck them off the playing field. Right in the middle of the case, we have a homicide, right? So we get these guys off, right? 
case is still going, and these guys are still talking about homicides. So one guy, one of the one of the thieves in the case, this guy Fausto Gonzalez, small guy, five five, five six, hundred and thirty five pounds, soaking wet, basically was a serial killer. And would kill anybody for anything. He killed people for money. He killed people for insulting him. He killed a guy. What they would do is they would go into lower Manhattan, a pack of them on motorcycles, and they would drive around. And if they saw you on your bike and they wanted your bike, they'd pull up to you with a light and surround you. So everybody just thinks you're with them. You know, as this bike guy, they surround you. He'd get off the back of a bike and put a gun in your ribs and go, get the fuck off the bike. You didn't get off the bike fast enough. He killed you. And he killed a guy that owned a club in lower Manhattan. And that homicide went unsolved for a couple of years because everybody thought he owned a club in Manhattan. Maybe it's organized crime. Maybe he wasn't paying somebody. Maybe somebody got kicked out of the club and came back and killed this guy. No, the poor guy was a victim of riding his motorcycle and Fausto got off his bike and killed him. Another homicide um, with that case is there were these guys 10 years before. I think they were knocking off banks and armored cars and um, – Two guys go to one guy goes to jail. He doesn't rat out the other two guys. He does a couple of years in jail. Meanwhile, the guys that got away with it take the proceeds of the money. And now they invest it in the drug business and they're running Connecticut. As far as you want, wait, you go see these guys. So their friend gets out of jail and uh, he goes to them and he says, hey, kept my mouth shut. I want what's mine. So they pat him on the head and they go, yeah, 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 yeah. You got a job. Go whack this guy. Go beat this guy up. Go collect money off of this guy. This guy's like, no, 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 no. I want to be a partner. So what he does is he kidnaps one of their couriers, who I had arrested for a stolen motorcycle, puts him in the trunk of his, his car for a weekend, brutally beats this guy within an inch of his life, takes the kilos, kicks him in the ass, and sends him back to the other guys and says, tell them I'm not kidding around. Next time, bodies are going to start going. Well, he's got to go. So what they do is they take the guy that was in the trunk. They send him to the Bronx because he knows our thieves. They go up to Connecticut. They work out an agreement where they follow this guy around. He stops at a light. They pull up to him on a motorcycle. The guy in the Fausto's on the back of the bike, empties a Glock into the guy, shoots him 11 out of 14 times. They drive off. They put the, the motorcycle in a U-Haul truck while everyone's running around looking for this, this motorcycle. They, they dump the gun. They take the, tr the bike back to the Bronx. I forget if they changed the VIN number on it or they chopped it or they sold it, but they got rid of the bike. And that homicide went, went unsolved for years. When we took that case down, the main thief, this guy Mario, he was the getaway driver on a lot of these homicides. Now, you're just as guilty as pulling the trigger on a homicide, but they needed him to be a witness in all these homicides. So the federal government and... Uh, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office cut a deal with him. I think he wound up doing a little over 10 years, but he testified against Fausto at a lot of trials. And I think they were able, I don't know how many he was convicted of, but I think they, they attributed between 13 and 15 homicides to him. That's wild. Do you have a case that got away, one that you never were able to solve? Oh, plenty. Um but off the top, nothing big. You know, it's funny. There are times where my mind just wanders and I say, why didn't I look at it this way? Why didn't I? Sometimes I have dreams like that. And I wake up, I'm like, what do I? There's nothing I can do about this. The statute of limitations have expired on that felony. You know, it's not a homicide. Yeah. So after five years, unless it's racketeering, all bets are off. But not off the top of my head that one got away. But there's plenty. There was a guy. All right. 
there was a guy in my neighborhood as a cop. We used to call him Tiny. He was this 300-pound car thief, and he was fucking funny. He just was. Like one time, my partner and I are driving down the street, Kingsbridge Road, and he's standing next to it. He's standing next to this double parked car with Connecticut plates. It's a ton of snow out. And he waves, yo, what's going on? So we wave back, right? My partner goes, that motherfucker. I go, what? He goes, well, you were on vacation. I locked him up for a stolen car. I says, well, it's got Connecticut plates. And I ran the plate in the computer. I look, I go, it's stolen. So my partner puts the car in reverse. Now it's snowing. We start backing up in the snow and we see the car that, that he was double parked with going down the block in, in reverse, like 100 miles an hour, right? Wipes out the car, and Kingsbridge Road is on a hill. So he, we, we get out of the car, and we see his fat ass sliding down the snow. So we get back in the car. We drive around the block. We, we jump out. The street is empty. There's a, a mailman sitting in a mail truck reading somebody's Playboy magazine, right? So we go, hey, do you see a 300-pound fat guy, like, covered in snow? The guy burps and points at a building, right? So we run into the building, and that building had a garbage chute on each floor where you could go in and dump garbage. So we're following the, the wet footprints from the snow up the stairs, and then they just kind of end at like the third or fourth floor, and they go up to this garbage disposal. We pull open the door, and there's 300-pound tiny. goes, yo, what's going on? So we pull him out. We handcuff him. He goes, I thought that car might have been stolen. I was going to have you check, but then I figured I'd take off. So he's looking at jail time. So he wants to wheel and deal. We bring him down that night to the district attorney's office. He's promising all this shit. And he tells us that there's these two or three white kids from Virginia. They come up a couple of times a year with, 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 um, with guns. And they're looking to trade them for drugs. So he says, well, what's your role in this? He goes, well, I don't really get involved. I just kind of put them in contact with some guys that I know. I mean, he's, he's trying to minimize his involvement. But he's letting us know he's got information. So the district attorney gets him out on bail. Fine. He's supposed to work with us. He never calls us, never calls the district attorney. He's ghosting us for months. So one day after court, my partner and I, months had gone by. My partner says, let's go by his building and, and see if he's around. We drive by his building, double parked in front of his house is a white a Jaguar with Virginia plates with three white kids in the car and him. I says, you got to be kidding me, right? I run the plate. It comes back stolen. I think it was from Norfolk, Virginia, right? Everybody out. Lock everybody up. Couple of handguns in the car. I forget. I mean, this is 30 years ago. Couple of handguns in the car, right? We bring him down. I'm like, I don't want to hear it. He's like, can we talk? Can we talk? Like I'm fingerprinting. Can we talk? Can we talk? Starts promising this other shit, right? I says, I don't want to hear it. You fucked me once. I don't care what's going on with this. A couple of months later, a year or two later, I hadn't seen him. He vanished off the face here. A couple of years later, I'm in the precinct. They're doing a checkpoint, a DUI checkpoint. And there was this cop, very lazy guy. And um, I'm running the computer at the checkpoint. And this cop comes up to me and he says, hey, Vic, do me a favor. He goes, this guy handed me a driver's license. Can you tell him? This license doesn't look right. Can you tell me if it's right? You know, is it legit? It was a New Jersey license. So I look at the license and it's. Tiny's photo on the license with this bogus name, like Ruben Moy or something. I was like, what? what? Where is it? He goes, he's sitting in that Lexus over there. I says, Alexis, right? I go, did you take the keys from him? He goes, yeah, because he'll run. I go, if he sees my face, he's going to fucking take off. He goes, no, I got the keys. I go, what's up, Tiny? Yo, what's up, Ferrari? How you doing? Blah, 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 blah. I look in the window. The VIN number in the window is bogus, right? Get out. Lock him up for the, the car is stolen. The license is bad. 
I think there were drugs in the car. And again, this is 20 something years ago. Lock them up. Right. I get a notification a couple of weeks later to go down to court. I go down there. He's sitting in the office with the D.A. like the Cheshire cat smiling at me. She goes, we'd like you to work with him. I says, oh, no. And I said it right in front of him. I go, he will wheel and deal you and wave shiny things in front of your face. I says, and he's just going to give you enough to get his fat ass out of this room. And you're never going to see him again. So she says, well, we're going to work with them. I said, OK, great. His his claim to fame was his uncles, call them gangsters, Frank Lucas, uh, Nicky Barnes days. I don't know who they were, or, but he was what he, he wasn't a tough guy, but he had all these connections and people were in fear of his uncles who were old men at the time. But ha- Harlem legends, as far as gangsters were concerned. So that enabled him to kind of piggyback on their name with all these connections. He vanishes again. And a couple of years before I retire, I get called out to the two way precinct. Guy gets grabbed in a, a, a stolen Jeep. He's looking to talk. And it's tiny. And he goes, long time no see. I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Like, I just, I was like, every time I would get called to see this guy, it would just end in shit. He's probably dead now. I mean, he was grossly overweight, but I, he was a lot of fun. Like, I didn't despise him. He was, ent- he was a pain in my ass, but he was definitely entertaining. And very slippery, it sounds like. <laughs> For a 300-pound guy, he was like a tuna. Yeah, very slippery. That's awesome. So... You know, I'm sure you've watched your share of shows and, you know, read books that try to portray the relationship between uh, federal law enforcement and local law enforcement. So and it's usually really, you know, depicted as something very fraught. So what's been your experience with trying to work with the FBI or other federal agencies? Different. Well, I could speak from the New York City Police Department, right, because we're the largest police department in the country. We have a lot of toys that a lot of police departments don't have. So oftentimes we don't really need the federal government for a lot of things. However, uh, one of the advantages to working with the federal government and the U.S. attorney's office is when the feds say it's time to go to jail, you're going to jail. They have all the resources in the world, federal court. It's a different playing field than regular criminal court and state court. The sentencing guidelines are much harsher. And here's another thing people don't realize. When you're tried and convicted for a federal crime and say you're sentenced to jail time, they can send you anywhere in the country. So it's bad enough if you live in Massachusetts and you get you live in Boston and you commit an armed robbery and you get grabbed and they're going to send you to Walpole, right, for a couple of years. Well, you know, once a month. Twice a week, you and your family are going to go up and see your brother. It sucks. He's in jail, but you can put money in his commissary. If he needs a lawyer, you can pay somebody to go up to Walpole, right? You get locked up in the federal system. They can send you anywhere in the country. You could be in a hellhole like Lompoc, California, or Big Sandy. I think it's in Kentucky or Marion in Illinois. Who's going to come see you? Hmm. And when they build a prison, they're usually in the middle of nowhere. So there's no place to stay. Right. You're going to have to you're going to have to fly to some place, rent a car, get a hotel, drive back and forth. So how many times realistically are you going to see friends and loved ones once a year, twice a year? Yeah. So federal the federal system isn't club fed with people think like the 60s, 70s and 80s. Federal federal prisons are a lot more violent. Right. With all these drug gangs. Be, are in there nowadays. So the federal system is is a lot worse than people think. Now, as far as working with different agencies, I've had mixed reviews. Um, 
I love the ATF. I thought they were great to work with. They always got back to you. Um, uh, DEA was awesome. They were a great bunch of guys. U.S. Marshals, I, I, I cannot be more impressed with the U.S. Marshals and the Secret Service. You call those guys, they get right back to you. You know, FBI, mixed reviews. I mean, I'm not going to put it down on the agency, but different guys have different experiences. It's, it's been my experience. They come to, they kind of show up late to the party and want to know what you have to piggyback it on their case. I didn't have a bad experience with them, but let's put it this way. I had better experiences with the other agencies that, that I had mentioned. Yeah. Did you ever work undercover with any federal task force or anything like that? Not federal task force or anything, but it, it, when I worked in the narcotics division, I bought drugs. I wasn't an undercover per se, but I bought drugs a couple of times. I used to ghost a lot in narcotics. So when an undercover stepped out of a vehicle um, to make a purchase, I'd be a block away or a couple of feet away, just kind of hanging out, pretending I was getting on the drug line to cop. So nothing, no one would fuck with the undercover. Um, in the auto crime division, a couple of times, you know, I, I purchased stolen vehicles off of younger car thieves who thought like I was like a player. In, in the auto theft world because I knew the lingo and because, you know, my look and my age. So I, never deep undercover, but definitely plain clothes a, a shitload of times, decoy work and stuff like that. Cool. All right. So we've seen some pretty bad examples of policing come to light in the past few years. What do you think of that? Like, do you think it's gotten worse? Was there a lot of that going on when you were on the force? Well, New York City Police Department's got at any given time between 35,000 and 40,000 members. So you're going to get bad apples. We hire in bulk, right? A small policing identity class is like 250. A large one is 2,500. So no matter how many psychologicals and trips to the psychiatrist and, and exams and everything else, there's still people that, that can game that system. Um, there's a chapter in one of my books called Crossing Over to the Dark Side that deals with police corruption and how the New York City Police Department handles it. I think they do a very good job of it. If anything, I think they're paranoid about it. But, you know, you, I guess they err on the side of caution. So if they even suspect you're involved in something and they can't prove it, it's almost like being in the mafia. They put you on the shelf or we call it modified assignment. You're stripped of your gun and badge. You're pulled from whatever assignment, whatever precinct you're working in. And the NYPD is so big, they kind of send you to like their version of Siberia. You're in the court system on midnights punching a clock or you're out at the pound uh, by LaGuardia Airport with planes flying over your head every 15 minutes, getting, trying not to get attacked by feral cats that live underneath the cars out there. Oh it's a fucking shit show. So they can send you anywhere and you could be there for years. It's not like they've got a certain period of time to uh, exonerate you. Also, the NYPD's um, trial room where you go for administrative hearings is definitely a kangaroo court. It doesn't go by beyond a reasonable doubt. It goes by preponderance of evidence, which is 5150. So even if they pretty much suspect you did something and they can't prove you innocent, you get, you know, and, and the hits there are anywhere. They take 30 vacation days, put you on a year probation. There's a lot of things they can do to you. Um, so I think the NYPD handles things well. I, I think one of the greatest things that happened to law enforcement, and, and, and I, I wasn't a fan of it when it first came out, and this is after my time, was the body cam. And there's more training for cops now than there ever was before. I mean, 
it, this isn't the deep South in the 1950s where the, the sheriff doesn't like you and you're going to wind up in a ditch at the end of town. There's just too much going on. Everybody's got a video camera, a cell phone camera, ring doorbell, uh, GPS trackers in police cars. Your radios nowadays can tell who keyed the mic and where they were. So if there, you had all this, does it happen? Yes, it does. But to the grand scale that the media makes it out to be, here's the deal when like sometimes these shootings go sideways or something. Sometimes there's just not a right answer. And that's life. Sometimes there's not a right answer to something. You can't train somebody if someone's got a hostage and they're coming at you shooting at you. You know what I mean? Or someone's coming at you in a car, you know, that's mentally ill. And you wind up, you know, emptying your gun into the car because you're under a lot of stress. They're coming at you with the car. There's not sometimes there's just not a right answer, unfortunately. Yep. Yeah, I took a um, Citizens Police Academy a few years ago. And one of the exercises that they made everyone do, I did it for research for some books I was working on. But one of the exercises they made you do, like you couldn't opt out. It was a use of force exercise. So they gave you a taser, they put some bad guys in front of you, and then they started running all these different scenarios of, you know, how you would handle this. Um, and it was really enlightening, right, to see, like, just how quick things can go south and how quick you have to make a decision to do something. Yeah. Did you do the simulator training? No, this is a real live thing with the local police department. I think they should make every member of the media. I can't. It's called a simulator. I think it's called FATS or FATS, FACTS training. Basically what it is is there's a couple of TV screens right around you and you're outfitted with a police gun belt and a gun that's got the weight of a gun and and feels it and has kickback like a gun recoil. Right. And there's different scenarios happening where you're pulling over a car and the computer responds to your commands. Right. But you're pulling over cars and people are jumping out, shooting at you or someone's coming at you friendly with flowers and drops the flowers and comes at you with a knife. And I've seen people that that, that you know, really thought they had everything figured out, go through one of those training things going, holy shit, I had no idea things could change that quickly. Yeah. Of course, this doesn't exonerate the cases like George Floyd or, you know, the things that are just clearly wrong and, and bad and should not have happened at all. But there are probably definitely a lot of examples where, you know, like you said, there's no right answer. Yeah, it's just it's an unfortunate, you know, thing. And, and it, it's um, one thing sets one thing in motion, then the cops get involved and that sets the other thing in motion. And it, it's just human behavior. Yeah. Okay, so you retired twice, once from New York and once from Florida. Is that is that right? Tell us about that and how did how alligators factored into your second retirement. So I retired. I moved down to Florida. I'm bored out of my mind. This is before I got into writing books. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to reinvent myself. I'm going to come out of retirement and become a cop again. So I come down here. I go to school. I get my certification. I get hired by a local police department. And it was a good police department. But here's the thing. I went from being a detective investigating organized crime for the largest police department in the country to a small police department, right? And I felt like I was on a bad episode of Reno 911 because everything is different down in Florida. So yes, law enforcement's the same. Someone does something wrong, commits a crime, you arrest them. But it's almost like having a stroke and having to learn everything all over again. The procedure, where things go, evidence, everything. 
And while I was in field training, we spent half a day learning how to wrestle alligators. And I was like, what are you fucking kidding me? Like, I don't have alligators in the Bronx. And they're like, no, you got to get in back of them. And everybody, we have duct tape and the radio cars. And I'm like, why don't you just call it? Can't we just shoot these things? Like, no, they don't want you shooting alligators, which I thought was, <laughs> you know, they had a mandate. You could shoot a wounded or suffering animal. I'm like, well, what about an alligator? Like, nope. So I, I couldn't get my head around that. Another part of the training, which I never had to deal with in New York, was you carried a taser in Florida and you had to be tased as part of your training. And I was like, I don't want to do this shit. And they're like, well, you have to, right? And we had to get maced <laughs> one day and then we had the taser. Now, I had been maced many times, not in training, but anytime someone sprays mace, everybody gets sprayed with mace. You could mace me. All day long and twice on Saturday, I'm fine with it. That fucking taser, I did not like. So when you, when they tased the cops, right, they didn't shoot the prongs into you. What they did was you stood up with your arms out like this, right, and they taped a lead to your arm and they taped another lead to your crotch. And I'm like, how the fuck does this go, right? And there's two cops standing on either side of you. And I'll never forget the guy that was – the guy that did mine, I didn't like. And uh, I says, because they can give you a three-second or a seven-second jolt. And I said, go for the three-second. And he goes, he goes, well, we'll see. I says, you know, at some point these leads are coming off, right? <laughs> I says, and I'm not gonna. And I says, I'm not gonna handle this well. So he gave me the three-second right, and I did not like it. It's not that I've had a heart attack, but I'm guessing that's what it feels like. Your whole body tenses up, and you can actually feel the electromagnetic pulse. Pulse, you can hear it. You just hear like a clicking sound. And I'm fighting it. And then I said to myself, just just give up and this will be over. And I just went limp and they caught me on either side and I was fine like a second later. Yeah. But I didn't like it. Yeah, I wouldn't like that either. So was it that or was it the alligators that made you decide, hey, this is not for me? Oh, the game had passed me by. (laughs) Here I am, 41 years old or 42 years old, doing midnights. Um, I did not have the patience that I once had. So you got to remember, I was a detective doing organized crime. Now I'm going on disputes, listening to people with the same problems, calling us every 15 minutes. Um, DUIs, like, you know, when I was a cop on patrol, did we lock people up for DUI? Yes, we did. Was it as much as the emphasis put on it is now? No. Now, I mean, in the old days, I can't tell you how many times we call somebody a cab or throw their keys in the weeds or throw their keys in the trunk. It's, it just was too much shit going on in New York City in the 80s and 90s to get involved with a DUI. Nowadays, you know, especially now with a body cam, you can't let somebody go after a couple of drinks. God forbid they get back in that car and hurt somebody and, and there's body cam footage of you letting the guy go. You're done. You're, you're going to be held civilly. It's the same as overserving somebody. In, in a restaurant or bar. So, you know, those days are over. It, it's, um, you know, just the world changed. And it, I, I said, you know what, what am I doing here? You know, I mean, I wasn't making much money doing it. I did it to keep busy. And I said, you know, the game has passed me by. It's just a young man's game jumping in and out of a car 40 times a night. What am I doing? So I re-retired and friends and family said, you know, you should start writing books about your experiences. I go, Who's going to want to hear what I got to say? And they said, no, no, you know how to tell a story. Start writing it down. And I did. I started writing books and they started selling. And, you know, here we are. 
That's awesome. So you never actually thought about being a writer ever until someone suggested it to you? Cops are a very secretive bunch. We don't like airing dirty laundry. We like keeping things to ourselves. So that was an obstacle I had to jump to get into this, into the literary world. Mm. But you love it now. I do. It's challenging. You know, it's funny. I'm writing another NYPD book right now. I don't have a title for it. I'm in about 200 pages. I send a couple of pages to a couple of friends and they're like, it's good. And I'm like, it's lacking something, isn't it? And they said, yeah. And I started changing a couple of things and now it's flowing again. But, you know, it's it's you, you're a writer. You know what it is. Some days the words are just coming to you and everything's coming up peaches and cream. And then there's other times you want to pull your hair out with a set of vice grips because it's not working. Yeah, totally. So did you always know you were going to self-publish or did you kind of explore other avenues of publishing before you landed on that? No, like most things I do, I had no idea what I was getting myself involved in. And I start, you know, I'm in the process of writing a book. And then I'm like, okay, now how do I do this, right? So I'm looking at what I would have to do to shop my manuscript to different literary agents and publishing houses, right? And I said to myself, I know myself. I am not a patient person. There is no way I'm going to send my baby out 30, 40, 50 times and wait for that phone call. I just, and then they might want me to change things or, you know, once I'm done writing a book, that's it. I'm not going to read it again. Uh, it, it's I can't because it, it'll torment me because I know I could have done it better. So I wasn't going to play that game. I said, OK, I'm going to self-publish. How am I going to self-publish? So I just start reading article after article. And the one thing I saw was how many people get ripped off self-publishing because you have all these companies promising all these things. Give us five. Give us ten thousand dollars. We're going to do everything from you. We're going to assign you uh, an editor. We're going to do your marketing and some of these companies, you got a partner now as far as in addition to charging you, they're taking a percentage of your royalties. And, you know, you're not going to get rich on book royalties. You're just not. And even self-publishing where, you know, the only person that's got their hand in my pocket right now is Amazon, which is fine because they print my books on demand and they provide my digital content and Kindle Unlimited and everything else. But the more people that touch your product the more they, they want a piece of the pie. So I knew I wasn't going to get into bed with a company that was going to publish. So how was I going to do this myself? So first and foremost, I go, all right, I got the manuscript done. I need a book cover. Where am I going to get a book cover? And one of the first things I read was so many people skimp on the book cover. They either got a friend that's a graphic designer or their daughter is an art student. And they put out a book cover and people do. You're, you're a writer. People do judge a book by its cover. It's the same totally. as buying a bottle of wine, right? You go to the supermarket or, or liquor store, right? You want, you're not a big wine drinker, but you go into your girlfriend's birthday party or something. You know she likes red wine. You go to the wine section. You're looking for that label that pops. And if it's got a funny name, even better And because it's an impulse buy. And it's the same with buying a book. You know what I mean? So people go into the true crime section and they type in true crime NYPD, right? I, I knew I had to have A, a catchy title for my book and B, something that's going to make it pop. So I found this company called eBook Launch. They're out of Canada and they're known for these really well done book covers. So the price was right for, um, for a paperback, 
you know, front and jack. So here's Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. So I fill out a form. I give them the name of the title. And then they ask, what do you want? And I said, I want a, a car getting stripped by a couple of guys in hoodies, stacking parts next to it in front of a abandoned building. I want it to look dark. Boom. Right. People also forget when you're going with a paperback, you need a back jacket. Right. Which has got about the author and what your book is about with a photo. A lot of people skimp on that and they get burned. So but for 500 bucks, I get a book cover front and back for paperback and ebook form. Right. Another mistake people make with self-publishing is the editing process. And there are grammar Nazis out there that will knock the shit out of your books and the reviews that will lower your rating and then people won't buy your book. So no matter how well your sister is an English major, you got to get a professional copy edit and you have to get a professional proofread. And it works like this. And ebook launch provides that. The company is is one-stop shopping. It's a la carte. So you're not buying a package. So what I do is I go for a copy edit. I mail my my manuscript to them. They pair me with a, with a writer that they think will get my sense of humor or, or my type of writing, right? He or she gets it for a couple of weeks. I get my manuscript back. And it's almost like when you hand in a paper in college or high school and it comes back with all the red grease marks around it, they put track changes and you either accept or don't accept the changes, right? And that takes about a week for you to do. Then you send your manuscript to a separate editor, a proofreader. Proofreader is a real good grammar Nazi that really cleans everything up. Same thing. You approve or you don't approve of the changes. Then it's got to be formatted. That's another thing people skimp on. If your book isn't lined up right with margins and everything else in the fonts, it's going to look like crap and and, and no one's going to buy it. So I'm all in on a book between uh, the book cover, two rounds of edits and formatting, probably about twenty five hundred bucks. And my books range anywhere between 225 and 240 pages, paperback. Yeah. So once I lay out that money, I want that money back in a year. So here comes the marketing aspect of it. And here's another mistake self-published authors make. You know, if, if you're a published author, they're handling that for you. They're getting your book in brick and mortar stores. They're setting up book signings. They're, they're paying advertising on Google ads and Facebook ads. If you're self-publishing, the onus is on you now, right? Get a Twitter account, get a Facebook account for your book or, 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 or as an author and start, you know, tweeting and putting out ads with hashtags. And you got to know your audience. You just do. And you got to know who you got to play to your audience to. I learned the quickest way for book sales is podcast interviews. Hmm. And I started, okay, where would I fit in? True crime, authors, writers, and comedy. So that's what I do. I scour the earth on Podmatch, which is like match.com for for podcast hosts and writers, right? They pair us together. But also I go on, I go, (laughs) I go on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and I'm looking up podcasts every day. And I write a cover letter. Hi, my name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired 20 year member of the New York city police department. I've written X amount of books and I attach a couple of my interview links, right? From, um, couple of my interviews on, on that are on YouTube and my Amazon book page. You know, I'd love to be on your show. Sometimes they get back. Sometimes they don't. You play the law of the averages. But the more podcasts you do, the more audiences you're putting yourself in front of. And people go, Jesus, that guy's a character. He knows how to tell a story. Right. Mm-hmm. And they'll buy your book. 
Yeah. I love that. But I do have to tell you that even if you're traditionally published, sometimes you're not getting the, you know, red carpet rollout for marketing either. <laughs> but you <laughs> so. advertise, right? I'm sure you do, right? I'm sure you have ways. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but we do a lot of it on our own for, you know, I'll speak for myself and, uh, you know, some other cozy authors that, that I know we're doing a lot of our marketing on our own too. You know, we get some perks for being traditionally published, but until you really hit like a certain level, right. they're not spending a ton of money on you. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Unless you're Stephen King or James yeah. Patterson. That's another thing. Like James Patterson, if you are listening, and I know you write all these NYPD books, please, Vic Ferrari. <laughs> He's waiting for you. That's funny. So what's the biggest mistake you see writers make about when they're writing about police and law enforcement? I belong to a lot of Facebook and Instagram writing groups and stuff. I'm... And this is going to sound arrogant, and I don't want to sound arrogant, but I think you should stay in your lane as far as what you're going to write about, unless you do so much. Re and, and, and listen, there are there are true crime authors that were never cops, like T.J. English, uh, Jerry Capace of the Daily News. Um, there's a lot of great true crime writers that were never cops, never investigators, but they do the research and they have that talent, right? But I belong to a lot of these groups, right? And it's people that want to be writers or want to write true crime. And I get it. And that's their pro But they ask these questions that drive me nuts. And I'm saying to myself, if I wanted to write a book about being a doctor, I've, you know, I know nothing. I, I, it, it, it would... I don't even know where I would begin. Yeah. You know what I mean? As far as the training, what it's like to work in an emergency room, you know, the liability that goes along with being a doctor, the stresses that go along with a doctor. I don't think I could do it. So, I mean, if you can write a true crime book with no experience whatsoever in policing or an investigator or a district attorney or something like that, and you can pull it off, all the power to you. I got nothing against it, but... I get hit with these elementary questions all the time, and I'm saying to myself, if you can't figure this out, and this is very basic stuff you're asking me, how are you going to get to the, you know what I mean, the yeah. skin and bones aspect of it with a crime scene or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So what about fiction writers? Do you, do you judge them as harshly as true crime writers? I don't read, I don't read fiction. You don't read fiction. Okay. I have no interest. No, I, I just, I don't, unfortunately. Um, maybe my mind isn't that creative. Maybe I'm more analytical. Um, yeah, I don't really read fiction. I never really was into it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It's a, it's cause I know a lot of, um, a lot of us, right. A lot of us mis murder mystery writers, we, you know, try to do the research. We, you know, I mentioned doing a citizens police Academy. Um, there's also a conference for writers. It's called writers police Academy, where they bring in law enforcement from all over the country cool. from all different aspects to, um, you know, to actually like hands-on train writers. It's very cool. So there, there are a lot of resources. Um, but you know, to me, that's one of the fun parts of being a mystery writer is trying to do the research and, and learn about what I'm writing about. So I'm doing it well. You probably, if, if you have that, that, uh, uh, curiosity with that, you probably would have made a good investigator. Yeah. Well, my grandfather was a detective back in the Where, day was he a detective? in a little town called Lawrence, Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And you know, he told me some stories, but I was pretty young when he retired and, um, 
I never, as I got older, I didn't leverage that resource well enough. I didn't ask him to, you know, kind of go back and tell me some of the, the gnarlier stories that he probably didn't share with me when I was young. All right. I got one more question for you. We're going to go back now to before you were a cop, before you were a writer, we're going to go back to high school because we also have in common that we both went to Catholic high school and I got to know, <laughs> how did that, how did that ruin your life? <laughs> oh, it didn't ruin it. It was probably the best thing in the world for me. So I'm a little son of a bitch and, uh, eighth grade and was sitting around the dinner table and, uh, my father points at me and he goes, you're going to Catholic high school next year. I was like, what? We don't even go to mass. Like, wait, 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 are you kidding me? And he goes, you're a clown. And if I send you to public school, you're going to be a bigger clown. So pick a high school run by the men in black. And I did not want to go. So I had had a couple of run-ins with the Catholic church. I knew I did not want to be involved with corporal punishment. I got chased out of a confessional for confessing one sin too many to an angry priest. So in the old days, Catholic high schools in New York City wouldn't just take anyone. It was like the NFL draft or the combine. You had to go on a Saturday and take an entrance exam. And I think New York, the Bronx had like 12 Catholic high schools all around the Bronx and probably 40 or 50 around the city. So you had to take this entrance exam, public school kids, just to get your foot in the door. And then depending on how well you did on the exam, it was like going to college. They'd send letters. And then you had to go for interviews. Like it was a whole process, right? So I go to Monsignor Scanlon High School, was in my neighborhood, right? And me and a bunch of my public school friends go, right? And there's these nuns. Never dealt with a nun before. There's these nuns, and they were like bouncers at a club, right? Like they had these clipboards and they're reading off names and they're sending us in different directions, like like real fraulines, you know what I mean? Then you had Mother Superior. She's standing in the middle of the courtyard with a bullhorn fucking yelling at us like, what's going on here? They put us in a classroom and they make us sit one apart because they knew we were going to cheat. So I was like, I don't want to go to Catholic high school. Like, I want no part of this. Looking back, it was probably the best thing to ever have. I went to an all boys Catholic high school in the Bronx. It was probably the best things that ever happened to me. It kept me on the straight and narrow between that and my parents. God bless them. Um, it straightened out my life because I definitely if I would have went to public school, I probably would have gotten into a lot of shit that I shouldn't have. It kept me on the straight and narrow, especially with athletics and track and baseball and everything else and the camaraderie. The high school I went to was like Penn State for linebackers. I When I was researching Confessions of a Catholic High School graduate, I think my graduating class of 250 boys, 40, became New York City police officers. So there was something to that. And it was it was one of the greatest experiences in my life. Um, I've got a couple of funny stories about that. You want to hear about the Catholic yeah. Church? So um, junior or senior year, I'm clowning around in front of a classroom. And I was being a pain in the ass. The English teacher comes out, smacks the shit out of me. I want to kick his ass, but I just want to graduate high school. I let it go. I was humiliated. 10, 12 years later, I'm a cop in a precinct. There's this crackhead running around the neighborhood, punching women in their face and taking their handbags. My partner and I actually was the guy that was involved in that Times Square killer thing. He and I grabbed this guy coming out of a short stay motel. We lock him up. We bring him into the precinct. We start going through the, uh, the complaint reports of 61s, and we're calling up the victims to come down to view a lineup. 
One of the victims, she's a woman. She does not want to come down. So I tell my partner, I go, watch the perp. I'm going to go and close the deal. I got to get this woman to come to view this lineup. I knock on the door. Who answers the door but the guy that smacked the shit out of me 13 years later? And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, it was like a, like a twilight zone. I'm in my uniform. He's like, Vic, what are you doing here? I'm like, your wife was involved in a robbery several weeks ago. Come in, come in. He's a born-again Christian. He's trying to convert me. Well, I'm already Catholic, but he's just like, have you read the good book? And I'm like, listen, listen. We'll get to that later. I got to get you and your wife down to the 4A precinct where Bronx homicide is. We're going to do lineups, right? We get everybody. We get all the victims, their families. They're in a room. We've got our bad guy who's a crackhead. He's a white guy and nasty, just a vile individual, right? But we need five white guys that look like him. And, you know, he's got fucked up teeth and the hair and everything. We couldn't get five cops in the precinct to change into plain clothes and look like this guy. So my partner goes, what are we going to do? I says, well, we got to find, you know, five rough looking guys. So my partner watched the perp. I find this old dive bar off of Fordham Road. And when I tell you, I pulled five Hall of Fame drunks out of that bar, threw them in the back of our Ford Crown Vic, drive them to the precinct, get them in the room, like behind the one way glass. Right. And the bad guy is getting mouthy with these construction workers and sand hogs. I mean, rough men, right? And I'm like, dude, you better fucking slow your roll or they're going to beat the shit out of you, right? So we're doing lineups and, and they're getting chirpy inside. I can see behind the glass, right? I bring in the last victim who is you know, married to the guy that smacked the shit out of me, right? There's so much more to this story. I'm kind of giving you bare bones. While she's viewing the lineup, she doesn't want to pick the guy out. She starts crying. She's staring right at him. I can't ruin this man's life. I go, lady, do you recognize anybody? Yes or no? I don't know. Blah, 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 blah. With that, two of the construction workers jump up in the lineup and start beating the shit out of our bad guy. I'm like, oh, fuck. So now my partner runs in. I run in. And we're, it's Jerry Springer in there, right? Like we're pulling <laughs> these construction workers off our bad guy, right? Calm down. Calm down. Everybody calm down. We calm everything down, right? The bad guy yells in the lineup with the woman on the other side of the glass. Did she pick me out? So we couldn't use the goddamn. We got the other four or five lineups, but we couldn't use that one. But it just goes to show you, I mean, like things come full circle. Another story involving the Catholic Church is, and I don't know if I told you this one the last time we spoke. Early 90s, my partner and I get flagged down by two young, two young nuns. Did I tell you the story? No. Early 90s. It's in the Bronx. We're in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. We get flagged down by two young nuns in their outfits, like the habits and stuff. Now, you got to remember, in that neighborhood, you had the College of Mount St. Vincent, which is a nursing school, and Manhattan College, which I think James Patterson went to. So you had a lot of sororities and fraternities always doing stupid shit. You know what I mean? And we would get involved in it. So I saw two young nuns. I go, oh, boy. All right, let's see where this goes, right? And they flag us down. And they're really upset. And um, two young women, and basically they came down to the Bronx. They stole Mother Superior's car. So it's over the weekend. Mother Superior goes to New Jersey to visit family, right? They steal Mother Superior's car. They go off the reservation, the nunnery, the convent, whatever. They come down to the Bronx. They park in this pizzeria parking lot on Broadway. That's got a sign, you will be towed unless you're eating pizza here. And they go for a shopping spree down Broadway, right? They come back, their car is gone. So they flag us down. So I'm listening to this shit and I'm like, come on, girl. And they were attractive. That's the funny thing, right? So like, come on. They're like, 
I, I had to see like their nun ID, right? So we put them in the they car. They have a nun ID? Yeah, nun ID. So we put them in the car and we go to this tow yard, right? Anyone who's ever dealt with a towing company, they're not nice people. I'm sorry. I've dealt with a million different towing companies. They're never nice. It's fuck you, pay me. They want their money. They're not releasing the car. This guy, I'm hitting the siren because there's a trailer in this fenced-in property, right? I'm hitting the siren. This big fat guy comes out eating a slice of pizza with his fly open. He walks over to the gate. I'm in uniform. I'm like, listen, can you let these nuns get their car back? He goes, it's going to be 100 bucks." I go, dude. You're Catholic. He goes, nope, nope, nope. Nuns are crying. They're afraid they're, afraid they're going to get kicked out, right? I said, all right. Now, this is before ATMs, right? Or if they did have ATMs, I didn't have an ATM card. This is like 92, 93. So anyway, I go back to my locker. I get 100 bucks. The nun is swearing up and down on a stack of Bibles. She's going to get me my money back. I said, all right, no problem. I give the guy 100 bucks. We get a car out. They couldn't have been nicer. Right. She says, I'm going to pray for you. And I says, you're going to pray for him. She said, no. So I give her my phone. This is a true story. I give her my phone number and um, I was between apartments. They say you can never go back home. And I did. And (laughs) so I'm living at home. Right. No cell phones. Right. This is answering machines and shit. About a week after this thing happens, my father who's a smart ass. I come home one day and he goes, hey, sister Samantha called. I said, okay, did you get her number? He goes, yeah. I said, all right. He goes, Sister Samantha, right? And I go, Dad, <laughs> she's not black. She's a nun. He goes, oh, I don't care who you date. Wait, did you say a nun's calling here? I said, yeah. He goes, what, why? And I go, Dad, it's too much to get into, right? So I, had, I call the convent, right? I get her on the phone. And this is very cloak and dagger. Because if you've ever lent money to anybody before, you always know it's going to be a pain in the ass getting back. And especially when you lend money to a nun. So I couldn't just go to the convent and get my hundred bucks. We had to meet in a park the following weekend. There was a, a park like a couple of blocks from the convent. And I'm sitting on a bench feeding ducks. Right. She sneaks off. She's got an envelope for me and she sits down and she gives me the envelope. And I says, listen, you know, you could have taken your time. I was going to hound you for the money. And she's like, no, no, no. It's the right thing to do. When I go to Mother Superior find out, she goes, no, please. Thank you so much for not saying anything. And I asked her because she was young. She was like, how old would I have been? I was like 25, 26. She was a couple of years older. Like she was pushing 30. And I go, you know, I says, you're a young woman. I says, you sure, you know, the choices you made? She goes, are you sure the choices you made? I said, yeah. So I'm happy to be a cop. You know, everything's going good for me. She goes, me too. And I said, all right, well, let's keep in touch. And we did. Um, We talked several times. And um, then, you know, one thing led to another. I went my way and I never heard from her again. But that's a true story. I think that's in my book, Grand Theft Auto. But yeah, um, lending 100 bucks to a nun can be a real pain in the ass to get it back. So is that the Catholic guilt that that prompted you to lend her the money or just you felt bad for her? Because <laughs> I know the Catholic guilt can be overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, it's probably both. You know what I mean? You're crying. I mean, I'm a sucker. You know what I mean? I just felt so bad. You know, my partner was like, he's like, I can't believe it. He goes, he goes, I wouldn't believe this. You know, if someone told me the story, I wouldn't have believed it happened. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad you had a better experience in your Catholic high school days than I did because <laughs> I wouldn't call it the greatest experience in my life. <laughs> you know, I got it. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's not like I, I got knocked around a lot in Catholic high school. I, I got my chips and dings in there. But let's put it this way. For the amount of trouble I caused, I got off pretty easy. 
for the couple of times that I got cracked because I was a real pain in the ass. I mean, in my book, there's a lot of shit there that I got myself involved in and detention. And I always say I did five and a half years of a four-year sentence when you factor in summer school and, and detention. Yeah, I hear you. So tell us where people can find you if they want to buy your books, check out your stories. Sure. Um, just go to the Amazon book section, type in my name, Vic. Ferrari like the car. My book library will come up. Um, all my books have, you know, really nice covers like NYPD Through the Looking Glass. And I showed you Grand Theft Auto and the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime and Chaos. All my paperbacks are 10 bucks. I try to keep the price point down. Um, they're $2.99 ebook downloads. My books are also available on Kindle Unlimited if you have an account that way. And if you want to get a hold of me for an interview, you got a question, just hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at VicFerrari50. That's awesome. So if a writer that's listening has a question about anything related to law enforcement, you'd, you'd talk to them? I would, but get all your ducks in a row. Don't just keep hitting me with question after question. I'm not yep. the public library. Yep. There's no <laughs> system. Hit me one email with a bunch of questions. I'll answer them the best I can. Yeah, no, totally get it. Thank you so much. That's really generous of you to offer. Mick, we appreciate you coming on. Love your stories. It's been great having you. Thank you so much, Liz. I really appreciate it. So how fun was that? I love hearing stories about what it's really like out on the streets. It's just cool. I mean, it's never anything that you would expect either, right? So I'd love to hear what resonated most with you all on this episode. So let me know over on my Instagram page. You'll find that along with the link to Vic's books in the show notes. And friends, he's serious. Send him a message with your questions. I'm sure he'll answer you. And he's clearly got some stories to share. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you enjoyed it. As a new pod, it would really mean the world to me to get this information into the ears of anyone who needs it. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next week.